a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Hello, everyone. How's it going tonight? Going well. Excellent. Hey, friends. Oh, hey, Hello. it me. How you doing? <laughs> Hello. I'm good. Man, I woke up this morning. It was 38 degrees out. Oof, Winter's coming. I had Winter. the window open, the fan going, and I had to get up in the middle of the night and get an extra blanket. Mm. It was great. Yeah. Yep. Love that. The vibes are rolling in. I know. Going I'd rather be corn freezing and have blankets than... I'd yeah. rather be freezing and have blankets too, for sure. I still Agreed. I sleep with my window open most of the winter because... Oh, yeah. I kind of can't not, but that's the only right way. Oh, this is why your heating bill was so expensive last year. (laughs) I actually thought about that. I thought about that this morning because it was so cold. I was like, you know, and I keep it at 60 in my bathroom. The heat's totally off in my room, but I keep it at 60 in my bathroom, which is next to my bedroom. Uh And I realized like that thing is just like cranking all night because the room next to it's like 30 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. It's a problem. It's all right. It makes sense. Season's rolling over. I'm very mm. grateful for it. I'm going to the corn maze this weekend. Oh, fun. I haven't been to the corn maze in years, but I've, that's a exciting. pumpkin patch. Nice. I've never been to yeah. a corn maze. What? Yeah. You Californians have no I know. fun. Yeah. Well, we don't have any fun. We're just doing the same <laughs> fucking thing all the time. Let's go to the beach. <laughs> go to the beach and ride those stupid bird scooters everywhere or lime scoot whatever what i think bird, it's bird and, and lime. lime yeah Whoa. i have I, never been on one of those either <laughs> when we were in salt lake city that's like all dixie and i saw because we our airbnb was downtown they were so weird i did not partake um but i can see why cities get very annoyed with them no they shouldn't welcome them in well it's like half like littering just leaving a freaking motorized scooter. <laughs> Even just... in Bozeman, you're driving around like <laughs> two miles from downtown and there's just randomly a scooter like in a bush. Oh, yeah, because yep. it's some drunk person left it there. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, does this get, do they get collected or like the next person that wants one has to walk two miles? It also isn't like environmentally friendly. That's how yeah. like certain cities will pitch it. And it's getting plugged oh, into a grid powered by charged. fossil fuels. It's like, yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah. It's just using more energy. I'm sure We've it's start- dangerous. <laughs> We've litigated that angle we have, of it we have. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going down that uh, road. Don't worry. Speaking speaking of uh, fossil fueled electric items, um, my <laughs> my stove exploded. <laughs> oh my gosh! I saw what what happened. So Dixie was baking pumpkin bread yesterday. Our uh-huh. house smelled amazing in the evening. And uh, I think it ended up being a coincidence. So the order of events was she was baking. The bread had been in there for like 20 minutes. She went to go microwave something and like 30 to 45 seconds into the microwave cycle. Just this huge like boom um, and like sparks mm-hmm. all, all oh, something crazy like 
from the back of the stove, she saw the light and the sparks like against the wall come out from the back of the range. Lord. Um, and I was at work, right? So she calls me like I'm in the middle of a meeting and she never calls me while I'm at work. So I'm like, I should probably take this. And, uh, you know, she gives me the rundown. I make sure she goes and uh, makes sure the breakers for the kitchen are turned off and I rush home. So like long convoluted uh, phone calls and just like Googling, right? Because I'm a first time homeowner and I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. Nothing tripped on the breaker. It was literally like in the oven. It wasn't anything to do with the wiring. It was a coincidence that the microwave was running. Oh, okay. Because so, my first thought was like, okay, multiple appliances running on the same circuit. Like right. something tripped, something went weird. But the microwave is wired to a completely separate circuit than the oven is in my place, I found out. Um, very familiar with my circuit breaker panel now. I'm kind of glad for that. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. Dixie and I did a bunch of tests. Like I just, uh, we got on the phone and she was walking all, all over the house as I turned one, one off at a time to just see like, did that turn things off? Um, did you label them? Yeah. I mean, they were, they were pretty well labeled. There oh, were okay, a couple good, of mislabels. Good. Yeah. So figured out they're on different circuits. So I'm like, man, this is even weirder. So I, uh, I made sure all the, the, the circuit was off for the stove. I pulled it off from the wall, unplugged it. Like it's wired correctly and all that. Um, no marks on the wall or on the outlet of like any discharge, right? There was no burn mm-hmm. marks or singes or anything like that. Pull the back panel off the oven and just the whole back panel is just like burn marks. Like just, it was like some, it was like Iron Man just decided to like punch the wires in the back of my <laughs> oven because the thing was just like all over the place. Holy like, moly. The thing just gutted itself. Thankfully, no fires in our home, um, mm-hmm. but it was our first experience of like, oh my God, my fire extinguisher is at the ready um, <laughs> and we're going to go appliance shopping tomorrow. I was able to figure out like, I don't know where, where it happened in the circuitry because like nothing in the oven works in the panel itself like mm. the clock panel or any of the buttons don't work. Um, but the top, like the stovetop, the coils worked. So like wherever it blew out, it was, it was somewhere downstream mm. of wherever that all plugs in. Obviously I won't be using it. Um, <laughs> no, you should just start fresh. <laughs> so good opportunity to, uh, to tell listeners to make sure you own a fire extinguisher and you know that it's like been charged appropriately um, charged with it yeah you got to charge them if they if they go long enough without being discharged you kind of got to like i don't know how, fluff them up kind of <laughs> that was a terrible them? term for it uh there's there are like if you just look up um fire extinguisher Fluffing. chargers in bozeman mm-hmm. or something own a fire extinguisher also i am so thankful for the advice i got early in my life to build an emergency fund of cash for moments mm, like this because mm-hmm. Dixie and I are going appliance shopping and we are so comfortable with like, obviously we have a budget for the new appliance we're buying, but man, it's not like we're going to go without an oven for a few weeks. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, okay, this is going to be a, I don't know what an electric stove costs. $500. Uh, I'm looking at like anywhere between eight to 1200 mm. for a nicer one that probably like 
Yeah, I want to get like one the that, old one. Like it'll actually regulate heat well. And <laughs> so yeah, here's the thing: based on the serial number of the one that just blew up, yeah, it was either manufactured in 2014 or 2004. Uh, I'm gonna go with the latter, but yeah. yeah, that's what I'm guessing too. Which if <laughs> if the thing lasted 17 years, like that was a good life. I mm-hmm. it didn't have to go down in a blade of or like blaze of glory like this, but. I'll I'll take what I get. You know? Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's good to know. We yeah. went without a stove for several years at my dad's house. <laughs> Whoa! I'm laughing, Whoa. but that's sad. We were on yeah. sub floor too. Yeah. We just had yeah. a rotation of restaurants, and when the weather was good, we would barbecue. But yeah. otherwise, rotation of restaurants, and we'd order pizza. There you go. There it you go. worked. Yeah. <laughs> it does its thing, right? Also, one other point. I googled it. First article that comes up, you need to fluff it monthly for it to work properly when needed. And I think it's talking about a fire extinguisher. Yes. So that is not a totally uncommon term to use, Henning. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I would My like to know the to percentage the of people that do that. Probably like none. One percent. Yeah. I didn't. I to be I truthful, I thought it was a an annual occurrence, which I have I thought, done. I didn't uh, know see, it was a month. I've got a chemical uh, extinguisher in my truck. And it's got a gauge on it, and I just assumed you kept an eye on it and made sure that it was within the right. That is pressured up. Pressure, yeah. right? Is this right. different? I don't know. Now, just read your manuals. <laughs> Buy Good a fire extinguisher. I definitely didn't keep the manual, but you know. <laughs> okay. Well, usually well, they we'll do a good job. Later, I guess. Yeah, putting literature on the like on stickers on the <laughs> extinguisher itself. Yes. Anyway, right on. Those are my takeaways. Emergency fund and a fire extinguisher are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and big loud noises in the house are scary. So, you know, you get it. Yeah. Yes. Oh, man. Put it this way. I'm glad to be sharing a drink with you guys tonight. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, Did you get any more of that good good? No. I mean, Some I have good good, but it's in the form of mountain man scotch ale. Ah, <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. He's on the mountain man. You see how I timed that? Crack in the can. It was perfect. It, it was, was nice. perfect. <laughs> well, we're drinking something tasty tonight. Mm-hmm. Pretty well, too. I think. Kat's already had a few sips and said it's delicious. I haven't even tried it yet. You, Blind. You've been drinking a beer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Double fisting uh, tonight, uh, Mr. Torna. Banquet, a Coors. Uh, a banquet beer. Uh, what's, what's the other? A yellow, yellow back? What's the, the slang I've never, for? I've never heard that. Uh, yeah, whatever. I'm going to try this first time. Blind test review. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. I like it. Mm-hmm. Sold. This is, this is lovely. Now tell um, me what it is. We are drinking tonight. You ready for this? The monkey gland. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. What, oh. A, what a curious name. Yes. That's so fun. charismatic. It's a prohibition drink. I've got a little uh, write up here from this lovely book I have called Vintage Spirits and Forgotten Cocktails. So we've got the monkey gland this evening. And uh, this is the first paragraph of the write up about it. Prohibition turned out to be a boon to rebellious cocktail creation. The symbolic flagship of the Prohibition venue was undoubtedly Harry's Bar, which was far from American shores. I do not mean the famous one named after Harry Pickering in Venice, Italy, 
cozy and traditional as it might be, but rather the 1920s beehive of activity that was Harry's McElhone's joint in uh, Harry's New York bar, situated, ironically, in Paris. This venue embodied the spirit of Gatsby, of flappers, and of moneyed Americans abroad. From this wellspring flowed the cocktails that, to my mind, is most associated with Prohibition, the Monkey Gland. Named after Billy Meyer's song, in quote, made a monkey out of me. And I've got lyrics to that song, if you'd like to hear it. I want to hear it. So here's the song that this drink was uh, Can you envisioned from. Or is this I don't like know a how poetry reading? Poetry. <laughs> it's going to be poetry. I need some snapping. <laughs> oh, you have to earn the snapping. No, right, right, Let me right. hear the poem first. <laughs> I always felt like 83, standing round like an old oak tree. But something wonderful happened to me. Just wait and see. A little operation filled me full of syncopation. And now I shout with glee. And then in parentheses, monkey screech. <laughs> what? what? I'm monkey just screech. a monkey man. I feel like a wild monkey looking for a chimpanzee. In parentheses, monkey screech. Wow. <laughs> See this monkey talk. Every day in every way, I'm getting better in my monkey walk. Monkey screech. I'm wild as wild can be. Monkey screech. So don't you monkey with me. I feel like there should be a monkey screech, but there's not there. <laughs> Since my recovery the other day, I made a discovery, and that's why I say, understand, it was a monkey gland that made a monkey out of me. Don't know what that means, but uh, that's where this drink came from. Hmm. I would love I it if I the lyrics were is... actually in parentheses. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he yeah. sings the words in parentheses. Yeah. That would be very funny. <laughs> I have a feeling this is about sexual prowess. Uh, maybe. Maybe. He sees a monkey gland he likes, and he goes wild he goes for primal. it. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Well, it wasn't my takeaway, but it's fair enough. <laughs> Not that it's, he's actually seeing a monkey gland. Right, right, right. He's a guy right. and yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not totally dark. Maybe. You know, you know <laughs> like, how they call him the horny 20s? Uh, is that what they call it? Is that true? Uh, <laughs> no, it's the, it's the Roaring Twenties. Well, oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, things got they got down and boogied. There was a lot going on. Yeah, there was sure. a lot. Sure, yeah. Anyway, a lot of repressed energy from not drinking during Prohibition. A lot of it. Well, yeah. Uh, Seems like everybody was drinking during Prohibition. Yeah, I don't think it changed much. <laughs> if anything, got, it encouraged the activity right. we didn't yeah, want to see. Yeah, and some strong stuff, too. Mm-hmm. All the moonshiners. Yeah, hello, war on drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. God. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we got an uh, ounce and a half of dry gin in this, ounce and a half of orange juice. I actually had some fresh oranges, which always makes a difference. Uh, one teaspoon of real pomegranate grenadine. Sadly, I had to use gross grenadine because my homemade grenadine had gone bad. Oh, bummer. Uh, and then a teaspoon of absinthe, which gives oh, it that nice licorice flavor. The green fairy. Yes. It's this beautiful, like, rich, vibrant, salmon-y pink. Yeah. And boy, is it tasty. I put definitely extra um, absinthe in there, more than just a teaspoon. I put a quarter ounce, and I like it. It's really good. Well done. I what, want more. What did you say 
the beer was in your other hand, Torna? Uh, a Coors Banquet? And a Coors. Coors <laughs> Banquet. Right. Uh, I love me some Banquet. I'm a Miller High Life fan mm, myself. The champagne of beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the champagne. Hold on. Oh, okay. We can edit this out. She's taking a picture <laughs> of me. But well, you know what? Classic. Okay, I don't usually do this, but, you know, some people will know, some won't. Um, shameless <laughs> plug. I'm double fisting tonight. Today's my birthday, so. What? It, it is my birthday Torna? today. <laughs> yeah, Jesus dude. Christ. Damn Did it. Did you know this, Henning? Yeah, I did. I was gonna, I was gonna say something later, but he, he oh, literally okay. beat me Damn to it. Damn it! I didn't know I it was your birthday. I used to always not tell people, but then people get mad. Dude, it's, it's in my like, freaking Google Calendar. Try me. Right. So it's just like I need to be better about being like, hey, my friends, today's my birthday. Oh, I feel like a jerk. But to be fair, I only told you guys, so lots of people don't know. Man. We're here. We're into well, it. I feel like a jerk. Hey, happy birthday and cheers to you. God bless you. Thank cheers. you. Cheers. Glad to know you. <laughs> Good knowing you. <ya. laughs> heard it's all downhill from here. <laughs> oh, yeah. How old are you? 27. 27. 27. Wow. The big 2-7. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> thank you. I just spit I 20... beer. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> My 27th big year two was great. Seven. Yeah, the big 2-7. <laughs> Spoken like a, someone older than 27. Like a 30-year-old. <laughs> Hey, fuck you. <laughs> the big two. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Man, Torna, only eight more years until you can run for president. Oh gosh, it's going to be a good run too. Can't wait for that. Yeah, it will. We'll be voting. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be vice president, so. Oh, sick. <laughs> nice. Oh, sick. Cool. Uh, what position would you be good in, Henning? Me? Yeah. I don't know. Is that for you to judge? I mean, you're gonna be talking about me right? being the general last week. So <laughs> yeah, Henning's you'd probably be doing better than some of the guys right now. So can I? Um, uh, can I run Space Force? I'm into Space yeah. Force. Do oh, it. Yeah, we'll put him in charge. We'll gotta get funding for Space Force again. We can do that though. Hell yeah! <laughs> sure dude. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Hell yeah, dude! Either that or something like boring. I'd probably mm. thrive mm-hmm. in one of the boring ones that doesn't make the news very often. Right, low drama. What are those jobs? Transportation. Oh, there you go. That's kind of fun. I would get. I would immediately outlaw all the stupid grass and cloverleaf uh, on ramps and off ramps. But you got to replace it with some kind of drought resistant grass or native right, plant, right. though. We got to yep. have nice aesthetics and through, this administration through <laughs> you know <laughs> proper venues and uh, and proper you know uh conversation just banning grass is just a bit too tyrannical for me <laughs> well don't put, torna. don't put me no in your cabinet grass. then because i take <laughs> decisive grass? action my friend banned day <laughs> one i'm banning grass straight up tear banned. up your lawns good stuff <laughs> plant potatoes so yeah uh see you in a few years i'll be president okay nice. okay deal <clears throat> that sounds good to me. Dang, what will that be? Uh, twenty thirty? No, I'm doing my math wrong. Mm. So the last right you gain as an American is the right to run for president at thirty-five. Mm. A right that JFK very much took advantage of in seven so years. So it'll be twenty twenty-nine when you can run for president. There you so go. So then you'll have to wait until twenty. Oh, well, you got to get. You got to get your political career started maybe like 
and be a congressman. So you can you can go in on the yeah. midterms. Oh, right. You know, before okay. 32 rolls mm-hmm. around. I know a lot of people that have been active in politics and have run and gotten positions and um, served Montana State. Yeah, dude. So I feel like it's, it's plausible. How hard can it be? I could see you getting elected in the state. Yeah, is be that, fun. Is that a desire of yours? Like, uh, legit, like no jokes. I could see him doing that later in life when he's like built an empire. If uh, I, yeah, if I could do it more as actually, if I could justify doing it as actually a service. Right. Um, you're not going to try to make a career out of it. And yeah. Your money if through. I could be in a situation where I've got my goals set in place and passive income through different businesses and stuff like that, that I'm working towards. And I really could just like have the time to serve my state. Yeah. I'd want to do that. Damn it. Why can't all politicians be like you? Oh, we're back to we should all be like Torna. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of like having a side hustle while doing that. and Although as far as like the house is here, it's actually pretty, uh, pretty friendly for people because. In session. Yeah. They're only in session, you know. For a short window, right, That's and right. then they've got a nice break. That's right. So it's it's actually really actually pretty most good. of most have, if not all, have mm-hmm. actual careers right outside of right. being a politician. And then you get higher up, and right. if only freaking Congress was like that, right? <laughs> I know. All right, Torna, I'm still We're thinking just... about you running for president, and uh, mm. <laughs> I. Uh, I'm going to give you a segue here by asking, like, how do you think you would handle the rejection of losing an election? Like, and this is an election uh, you believe in running. Like, you, you, right, right. You think you would be the best person to sit in that chair and hold that office? Uh, disappointment, obviously. You would be very disappointed in, in losing an election, I think can't speak to this because I've never actually obviously been in the political realm, especially at that level. I know there's a lot of sketchy stuff going on. I don't think that I would be like discouraged. Mm-hmm. It would be like, ah, oh, better luck next time. But at the same time, like I'm sure there'd be horrible smear campaigns and it depends on the stakes too, right? They'd be like nine years ago on the whiskey bench. Steven said, yeah, something. Very real consideration. <laughs> You've been a public person since 2020, so I'm like, oh darn, I said that. Okay, you got me. <laughs> I had a tweet um, a while ago that it was essentially like, yeah, if you ever catch me in the future contradicting one of my past tweets, my only answer is going to be like, yeah, and I've grown up since then, so hush. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, especially if you said something, maybe potentially perceived as unsavory in the past and then you've changed that's a good thing mm-hmm. right yeah yeah i think more people have to just stand yeah. up and i said that. this last week i believe in the redemptive yeah capability of people so you know yeah there's that yeah but. i think he'd handle a loss gracefully yeah i'd be like oh that's a real bummer you poo poo heads <laughs> better luck next time <laughs> smell me later losers yeah, yeah. sure that's what we do when we burn out (laughs) yeah well so I'm hoping to tee you up for I want to hear your thoughts on what you teased at the end of last week talking about the concept of anti-fragility yes because in my mind like the ability to handle rejection is what comes to mind when I hear that word or the the ability to handle adversity 
really in any form. Mm-hmm. And like, right. I think Kat used a perfect word for it, which is gracefully. Like think I, there's a, there's a graceful way to go about life. Right. And that like, we don't have to snap in the wind at the slightest breeze, you know? Right. And that takes training and effort and things like that. So yeah, I'm just going to dive right in if I may. Please. The floor is um, yours, my friend. I want to recap quickly what I think I said last week. I haven't listened to the episode since it released, so I can't say exactly. I remember I remember teasing, but I don't know what I said exactly. <laughs> but um, I think I was just talking about um, being able to overcome uh, adversity and how that molds and changes a person, often for the better, which got me thinking about anti-fragility. So, anti-fragility is something that I first heard about, at least in that terminology, from a Dr. Jonathan Haidt, who's a psychologist. He has a couple different books. Um, his most recent book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. I think the subtitle of that is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up, I Think, uh, Future Generations for Failure, or something along those lines. But it goes back a little bit further to like 2010 maybe or 2014 a book written by a Nassim Taleb I think called Anti-Fragility where he was talking in economic terms also as well as psychological and uh, human attribute terms looking for a word that was the opposite of being fragile or a system being the opposite of fragile and he wasn't content with the opposite of fragile being resilient or strong, right? Because that's not really when you when you think about what fragile is and what strong is, it's, they don't quite mesh up as well. So he was looking for a word that was a description for something that, when put through stress, builds strength, like you would see in the human body with strength training and things like that. Mm. Um, and that can translate to uh, economics and the market. And so he ended up coining the term anti-fragile, which you can say like, oh, it's a dumb way to describe that word, but it's accurate, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the etymology is literally the ant- the <laughs> the antithesis of fragile. Right, right. Op- exactly. Yeah. The antithesis of fragile. So it's, it's accurate. And I think he chose that because it was more encompassing than the other words that were used to try to get at what right, right. and then, yeah. and then what he's going to make up some yeah. word or yeah right so so he's the, the uh talib is the the first one to kind of kind of coin that but like i said jonathan Haidt is um where i was exposed to it when he was talking about his coddling of the american mind book but it just got me thinking about how there's just a lot of people that are almost like stricken with the inability to deal with any sort of confrontation. And that ties into the tail end of this conversation we just had, understanding emotions. And I've got a a dear friend who recently was dating someone who was incapable of communicating emotions. Hmm. And whenever anything came up and that had to be addressed, it was like like a a flight reflex, Hmm. like just incapable of discussing how they're feeling or what's going on. And it became really difficult. It became like it instantly put that person into the the defensive mode and lashing out and then 
being like, oh, you're just patronizing me. And that's difficult, right? And that it translates with mm. emotions. It translates with conversations you have with people. I mean, I can't say we've all seen the clips, right? Because everyone's feed is different. But like someone's trying to have a conversation and someone just like starts screaming at them or, you know, whatever the extreme example is. But it's happening, right? People are being presented with ideas that they don't agree with or ideas that scare them and they have no skill set to be able to process them mm. and engage with them mm-hmm. in a healthy way. And that's where anti-fragility, I think, comes into this conversation and understanding or trying to understand how to become anti-fragile, which is what I, I would like to get out of this conversation tonight. I would say that you two are anti-fragile people. So what are some ways that you have found that help you be anti-fragile, engage in the world healthy? How do you rationally approach an idea or a conversation that's difficult? Because I don't want to say there's not difficult conversations. It's so, I mean, there's so many conversations that I could have that would instantly put me in a horrible position like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. But I know I'm capable of it. And I know that I'm not going to, at least on my part, I'm not going to burn that bridge with the person I'm engaging with. So that's my uh, long-winded intro there. This has been on my mind a lot, probably last few months at least. A lot of people I know seem to be becoming more fragile. And I don't know why, but I have some thoughts on that. And there's some trends and some ideology as far as education is concerned, that I think is leading to that. Jonathan Haidt has some great insight on that. But do we have any thoughts before I continue? Or, uh, well, did to, what I say make sense? I think you put it really well. Um, and your question, you know, how have we practiced that in our own lives? Um, I wasn't actually even familiar with this terminology until you mentioned it. But what you're describing, I'm familiar with, and I guess. For me, without defining it as being or attempting to be anti-fragile or like employing that as a practice in my life, there are two two things kind of come to mind and like resonate. One being in studying economics, you recognize and you learn about the value of failure, Mm -hmm. right? Failure in the marketplace roots out malinvestment. It's a necessary, healthy part of an economic ecosystem and and there's a ton of value in failure so there's kind of one way in which i've studied and observed how um being open to uncomfortable experiences or or failure or defeat can if you have the right perspective and approach and you learn the lessons that you're being taught can actually empower you right and strengthen you um, and the other, kind of on the other end of my personality spectrum, the idea, um, I learned about this through uh, Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist monk, but, uh, and she talks about sitting with your fear. And that's one of the most powerful tools I've ever learned in my entire life. And the concept is like, you sit with the thing that you're afraid of, that scares you, that terrifies you, that painful past, like whatever it is. And instead of reaching for, an outlet, even a healthy outlet, instead of reaching for that outlet and like of and moving on from that feeling, you you are fully present with it and you absorb it and you feel it and you process it 
and you eventually learn that it doesn't have power over you. And like, that's where there's like real deep soul change that happens. Mm. And so I guess both of these are a little bit different from kind of maybe they're straying a little bit or Mm -hmm. they're on the fringe of what you're talking about. But like, it's kind of the same concept that of, of allowing pain or failure or like difficulty better you and empower you. Right. Because resilience is a great thing and they're, People are resilient, right? Mm-hmm. But at some point, resilience is not making you better. Um, I think you can get stuck in your resilience. Hmm. Okay. Um, and those people that are just having a horrible time, I mean, I know a lot of people like this, right? Like resilient people that are going through hell. And they weather the storm and they continue to weather the storm. But how do you recognize not recognize how do you motivate your resilience into something even better than that because into growth into growth right Mm because that's the next step sure yeah i have in the past been resilient i can Mm -hmm. take things that happen to me and weather the storm so to speak but it didn't go to that next step a byproduct of that makes you more resilient because like you just said, if you can internalize those emotions and process them and understand them contr- completely, the next time that you're faced with adversity and you have to weather that storm, it's easier for you to process that. Mm-hmm. That stress and that hurt potentially that is required to process those emotions becomes easier, like training a muscle. That makes a lot of sense. But as I'm going through this, again, guys, this is, this is my venue for putting everything out on the table and working through ideas. So I apologize if what I'm saying doesn't make sense. Um, I think it makes sense. So the three kind of ideas of anti-fragility that I'm familiar with, again, come from Jonathan Haidt. You know, he's, he describes them as what your bones do, uh, muscles do, and then he goes into education and everything like that in humans, but talking about how children are very anti-fragile beings. Just like as children in their natural state are very anti-fragile. They can bounce back from a lot of stuff. And how we've responded to that has trained fragility instead of the natural state. But we know like bones require stress to build strength. That's why a lot of people, when they become sedentary lose bone mass becomes an issue mm-hmm. same thing with strength training you've got to push your body you can't push it too far right but you've got to push it you've got to rip muscle to grow back everything like that so we understand that from a biological standpoint but then we start talking about children and several episodes ago i remember i had mentioned something about the state of mental health, especially in the West, and how we see all these horrible side effects. And I, I think it might have been the Enlightenment conversation. And I was like, something's going on, and I don't know what it is. And I think this is getting me closer to that answer. And it's a result of a fragile mindset, which leads to a tendency for depression and anxiety due to some behavioral things which I want to get to here in a second, but I don't even know where I'm going with this, guys. I'm sorry. 
You know, Torna, my friend Jean-Jacques Rousseau would say yeah, that yeah. society is what makes people fragile because in our state of nature, we are actually good and pure and anti-fragile. So I, so does he... Wait, okay, hold on. Yeah, yeah, I don't want yeah. to totally derail, but remind me, does Rousseau believe then that we're like born fully equipped with the knowledge that we need? Does he believe in that innate knowledge? Um, he believes in some implanted ideas, um, kind of like uh, Locke t- did. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't go so far based on my reading and interpretation to say like we have perfect knowledge and some somewhere along mm-hmm. the line we lose it. Like I think that lines up with kind of the idea in the Christian tradition of the fall in the Garden of Eden. But I don't. Yeah, I guess Rousseau does believe that there's like more intelligent actors that should yeah but there's a but that there's a state of innocence in the the origins of the nature of man that we eventually um corrupt by like forcing individuals to like start fitting in with the culture i guess Mm. right right um to be socialized is to be corrupted in some way for Rousseau. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. Are you allowed to say? <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I'll, I can tell you a little bit. Um, I, I can tell you what you can Google. Right. Um, Perfect. Yeah, I worked on I worked on what's called the uh, Trident Two D Five uh, missile. What? Uh, my job throughout my entire career was to maintain it. Um, and then I worked at it. I was in charge of a depot where we uh, took them off and on the submarines. Uh, you're basically moving a three-story house wow. out of a submarine and into a onto a truck. So fascinating. Yeah. Steven Steven's fate. And now back to our conversation. Right. Okay. So I guess that kind of ties into what I'm thinking about as far as understanding children. Yeah. And where that shift was, especially in the West, right? Mm-hmm. Something is causing our generation to be more fragile. Like, am I stepping out on a limb here to say that more than we've seen in the past, people are less capable of engaging healthily with uh, difficult situations? Hmm. Yeah, I think in part. I would say where we do see that, what I've observed is that it's the result of of not having to face the same degree of trying circumstances as past generations have, right? Mm-hmm. Like with our wealth and prosperity has come yeah. great comfort we don't, we don't, and ease. Like right. our generation doesn't have the galvanizing moment like 9-11 was for a previous generation. Sure. I mean, that's a great example of, of hardship, but I'm I'm... Not even, not even like that. Just the, because I'm thinking that this is something that started younger and it's not something that we're seeing as intensely in 
our generation millennials, right? Hmm. 82 to 94 or whatever it is. What we're seeing is that in that next generation, it really, really starts to escalate. And depression and anxiety among young people has increased exponentially, especially young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say like in the last decade, depression in like preteens has gone up 100%. Well, there's that big expose on Instagram and Facebook and how those companies knew the impact their platforms were having on young teen women and true continued to push the same yeah which i I agree right i think i agree with that the whole that they're called the i generation Mm. the the iphone generation or referred to it as it often but that's part of it but it's something that goes a little bit further back because a lot of people can take in that kind of content granted young minds are different but something a little bit earlier didn't prepare them for being able to handle that kind of feedback, that kind of criticism that you might see. Well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Torna, I think for you and I, like, I don't know when you got your Facebook account, but I was 13, 14 when I got my face. I mean, Facebook had been around for yeah, a little while. Yeah, like that. But like, yeah. yeah. Before, it makes me sound like a really crotchety millennial to be like, I used to have to play outside in the dirt. But, <laughs> but like, <laughs> heck yeah, I love, the I don't dirt. know. Like, I think, I think there is actually something to like, uh, like exploring our world used to involve like jumping on your bicycle and going to the other side of town. Whereas yeah. like exploring the world now, it's like, it's so easy to explore on Google maps, you know, if we're using the spatial example, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I like I wonder if what you're observing is truly just the first generation to be born under the 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 ever-present eye of the internet. Yeah, yeah, it could be the panopticon, as it but, were, Mister. But Foucault. why then? Because this goes into talking about children and fragility and how, like, I had great parents, right? But they like let me do stuff, like. I was a little kid that was sick, like deathly ill, right? But they still let me like run around outside and play in the dirt. And like, I remember playing baseball and like in the, in the driveway and like cutting my leg on a rock and like, they let me four wheel, (laughs) right? So there was this, like, they let me engage in the world and sometimes it, it caused me to get hurt. They didn't coddle me. But now, a lot of the times when I'm out and about, like, I see children being, like, horribly coddled. Like, they're not allowed to run. They're not, like, all these things that I think are having really, really horrible long-term effects. Yeah. And there's some interesting studies on that surrounding allergies, which, hey, Henning, this isn't, I'm not. boy? (laughs) Oh, where is this going? I'm not trying (laughs) to. I'm not trying. I'm not trying. Coward. I'm not trying to put your parents on blast. Okay. All right. But this study has to do with peanut allergies. Of course it does. Peanut. Yes. (laughs) And there was a study done with like 800 um, children, and we see that allergy rates for peanuts in countries where doctors recommend that babies aren't exposed to any sort of 
uh, nut product are like so much higher than anywhere else, right? Which makes sense. So they did this massive study in like 2006 or something like that, where they took, I think it was 800 babies that were all at risk for allergies. So they had like eczema or some sort of autoimmune disease that traditionally would mean that you're more prone to other allergies. Mm -hmm. And half of them, they said, hey, do normal Western prescribed, like do not introduce any sort of peanut allergy, like mothers that are breastfeeding, don't eat any peanuts. And then the other half said, hey, you know, moms, you can eat it. Like we'll do it in a controlled situation, right? So they said, monitor it. We'll make sure that nothing bad happens, right? But like you can slowly, and they had a regime to how to slowly introduce them to uh, products like that. And at the end of the study, by the time all the kids were five years old, uh, 17% of the group that had no introduction to peanuts developed extreme allergies to peanuts. 17? 17%. Okay. And in the other group, 2% had some form of allergy, which is an 84% difference. Which, you know, 800 kids, not a huge data set, but it's an interesting thought at least, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exposure. And so it's a good idea, right? You, you think, oh, we know that kids that have peanut allergies is a really horrible thing, so we don't want to risk that. But maybe that good intention is a really bad idea. Well, look at some of this applies directly to many mm-hmm. nations' response to to. The COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. that we would, you know, uh, completely limit our exposure without recognizing that, like, this is something that's going to be endemic. It's something that won't severely harm most people. And the reality is we have to reach herd immunity in order for this thing to become endemic and our lives to become normal again. Right. And, and so in, and what like is the, we should take what's the best route to yeah. achieve that. Yeah. In my opinion, what you're describing, measured risk. Right. Is what's most appropriate and what's most efficient. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and now we're seeing like even now people that have extreme allergies, apparently like allergy uh therapy, like reintroduction therapy is incredibly successful. Like you can bounce back from it. But it takes a while and you have to like do it at the hospital. Well, and your body and, changes over time, right, too. Exactly. Like, you can have childhood allergies that dissipate as you grow older, or right. you can develop allergies as you grow older. And, and you know. Henning, you've, you've spoken about this before. Like, you, you think that your allergies are less extreme now, right? Um, my allergies to a handful of tree nuts, like cashews and pistachios, have actually gotten more severe. Um, since mm-hmm. childhood, peanuts have plateaued and stayed the same but in the meantime i've outgrown completely my allergy to almonds pecans and brazil nuts oh that's a good selection i love almonds you guys damn Word, almonds are great they are very good <laughs> totally yeah. um yeah so allergies certainly fluctuate and that you know part, I, I think a lot of that is biological i've mm-hmm. never appreciated and certainly my parents have never appreciated like, well, it's all in the kid's head or it's in the parent's head. Right. Oh, sure. It's not. I don't right. think that's what torn. No, I don't think he is either. But it's like, um, no, no. Because yeah. so like to my parents credit, I was exposed at a young age. Like I've never had a reaction since uh, gaining the capacity for long term memory. Like I've never had to use an EpiPen on myself. Mm, good. Um, 
but it was my parents who discovered that I have had the allergy because they, you know, like I would have a peanut butter cookie or like one time my dad had a, um, like a cracker with peanut butter. And at the time he had a pretty righteous mustache and he gave me a kiss and the whiskers <laughs> like pricked my cheek and I blew up in hives almost immediately. Oh, um, gosh. gosh. Yeah. So like for me, I like, I don't think I'm one of those cases where it was just like my parents were afraid of it or something like that. Frankly, my parents right. and, love and, peanut butter and they were kind of disappointed <laughs> when they found out I was allergic right? to it. But that's, and that's the thing. There's outliers. They, that, right? uh, but when, I think when I moved out of the house, literally like my dad went to Costco and bought like 10 jars of peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> like, hell yeah. I'm we're back, peanut butter. baby. Yeah. <laughs> so Torna, two thoughts, which Kat, you've already, um, pointed out brilliantly in my mind. Um, risk aversion is certainly part of our generation. I mean, hell, it's like, it's very present in me. The way I treat podcasting is like, well, it's a hobby now. And then eventually I want it to be my day job, but I'm going to take it real slow and like, make sure I can ease into it. Like eventually I truly believe that I'm just going to have to make the move of like, yeah, go invest a few thousand dollars into like, take the exactly. Yeah. Um, but like, that is not a muscle speaking to the like muscle analogy. That is not a muscle. I learned to grow through uh through high school and through college right so it's something that i i just have to continually like uh train myself for the other thing i think cat you nailed it with the idea of like sitting with your fear embracing your fear um tim ferris did a fantastic ted talk on a an exercise he calls fear setting which is essentially the same thing like instead of setting goals or whatever you just put you fill a page with everything you're afraid of yeah, and, and do the work to actually address like, okay, if that becomes true, will it be the end of my life? Maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, but like our aversion to even being afraid of what we want to try, you know, I feel like that is something people of our age has grown, have grown up with partly like probably has to do with, our environments, just like Kat said as well, like, you know, living in a wealthy country as we have with real, really no like mega test to our generational fortitude, you know, um, like we really haven't had to experience that kind of stress as a people group and as an age group, but also like a generation before us that were our parents. I think it's, it's easy to train a child on what to be afraid of and what to mm -hmm. find like experience extreme pain in by watching a parent, like parent, a toddler. So like I think of one of our old uh, youth leaders, Torna, um, I was moving into his place. They were moving to North Dakota. Right. And we were going to rent his house and they have those three concrete steps out on the front. And mm -hmm. one of his kids just took a, a righteous fall off the stairs, right? Oh, yeah. And watch this kid fall. And, like, in every experience I've had, that kid should have been, like, instantly screaming and panicking and, and like, completely red in the face because they're not breathing. They're freaking out so hard. But his parents, like, his mom was, like, in the living room, watched the fall. The dad was, like, at the foot of the stairs, and the kid fell. And he just looks at him, and he goes, the kid stands up and he just goes, you all right? And the kid's like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> and just walks away. <laughs> That's awesome. And, right. and, and I, there's those little kids and like I looked that. At, I looked at this yeah. guy and I was like, 
<laughs> How did what just happened? That was awesome. What just happened? He's like, honestly, most of parenting is just broadcasting what they should be feeling. So if if oh that's if so I made true. a face mm-hmm. as if I was panicking, that tells them that they should panic. You know, like if I make a that pain face, so they're gonna true. start yeah. feeling the pain that I think they should be feeling. Right. So like. Being afraid of uh, kids using the monkey bars or like the slide that's too high that doesn't have a railing or whatever. Like, yeah, accidents happen, but yeah, like, when did, when did playgrounds end up having like rubber mats everywhere? I know. Uh, definitely not when I was a kid. And this is like, Dude, I remember ago. getting like the like massive splinters from like taking a slide into yeah. freaking wood chips. <laughs> yeah. <not> insane. <laughs> Or jumping yeah, from swings, just... you know, you like find the biggest swing set and then you like at the top of the arc, you just jump off. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. As an adult, as My a full grown to... adult now, I would like, I would be thinking of literally every joint that was about to explode upon impact. Right. <laughs> but as a kid, I was like, this yeah, is totally. awesome. I'm momentarily <laughs> weightless. Exactly. And that's <laughs> something that I think helps with it is. The parents that are preparing their kids for life, right? What's the quote? Um, don't prepare the road for your children. Prepare your children for the road. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what do we think culturally has delivered this new approach to raising children? I still think it's internet. Fragile? And then what? Okay, so maybe. And then what? Well, okay. Because if it's internet, then we know the story well, of that. But. So, and I could also probably add cable news because we mm. as a society I think news is part are of it. asked yep. to care through like the biggest media outlets on the planet. We are asked to care about the most catastrophic things happening in communities. Like that's what sells all ads the time. on major news outlets. So we always see the yeah. bad stuff that's going on. And very rarely it's like a right. 30 second clip of like, here's this group of Boy Scouts doing this really cool fundraiser and, like, you should go check it out if you're in Billings. And then we're back to, like, COVID's killing everyone and the Proud Boys <laughs> yeah. are on the Proud of <laughs> Portland. And it's just like, but oh this my is... God, the world is the <laughs> yeah. worst place is, like, what we all get tuned <laughs> to true. think. That's true. It's reinforced Right, constantly. so that fear is, again, gets immediately put on the people around you, including your children I don't remember the and your family. Right, I don't, I don't remember the lady's name. She wrote the book... Uh, free range kids. Oh, she was labeled the worst mom of all time because she let like her twelve year old ride the subway alone. Well, that's kind of insane. But 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 here's the thing: this is the point that she's making. You can introduce your kids to controlled situations where they're able to do things that make them better little people, right? Like riding the subway. It was a controlled thing. It was like, hey, we're gonna be here. All those things. And her point is like, you can't coddle kids. You need to train them to be adults. And further than that, like, we live in, like, as far as crime and things like like, this is the safest time in history. That's true. Right? That's true. Definitely way safer than even I was a kid. But it depends on. Or when our parents were kids and our parents, like. That's true, like, in terms of long-term, like, big trends. But, like, depending on where you live, if I lived somewhere in a major city where there's a subway, I, I would be probably more cautious with my mm-hmm. children because those tend to be big cities with 
high crime rates. And ultimately, there's a difference right. between. I mean, I don't know. There's just there's a right. difference between Her being like Lenore Skinnazy too. Okay. Sorry. 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 Lenore. So there's a difference between being prepared and like knowing the risk and addressing your own fear, and then there's like full on like your your flipped lid worst case scenario thinking. And I, I just think we're all being taught to think in the worst case scenarios. Yes, exactly. Right? And so, so the counter argument to the subway thing is like, we can say, hey, the subway's really dangerous and stuff like that. But if you live in a place where there's a subway, I think you have an obligation to teach your kids how to use the subway. Sure. And if for whatever reason you ever got separated, like a 10 year old should be able to make their way home. How do you teach your kid how to get home? So even in that example, what's ha- what's happening? And that's and that's part of the thing. It's like treat your kids, not treat your kids. Teach your kids how to be able to take care of themselves yeah. a little bit. And Jonathan Height did the same thing. He lives. I think he said it's like a five no ten minute walk from the house to his office. And he walked with his daughter like every day for a couple of weeks to the office, right? And was like, hey. I'm going to be on the phone with you the whole time. But like, do you think you can walk from the office to the house by yourself? Like, can you figure out the directions? And then he was on the phone with his daughter and she was like, Oh, I think I'm a little bit lost, but he works in like a pretty main building. He's like, Hey, you're on the phone. Why don't you find someone, uh, find like a woman and ask her if she knows where this building's at and ask directions from an adult and like how to discern Potentially, who would be a good candidate to like give you directions and like <laughs> give your kids the skills to take care of themselves? Yeah, but still, you know, look over them, right? And it's an idea that I think isn't prevalent currently. No, I think people our, think kids are stupid. That's I think another piece to this yeah. puzzle. I think I think Henning's Henning's point about us being bombarded with with fear constantly is huge and definitely a part of this. And I, I think too, this idea that we, ch- I, I think our expectations of younger generations uh, have grown lower and lower mm-hmm. over time. We don't expect much. And we also, and that's, it's just a symptom of what our culture is like and what our day-to-day lives are like in a wealthy, prosperous country. The vast majority of America's kids aren't waking up at the crack of dawn to like make sure whatever chores around like we're not subsistence farmers anymore right like so there just isn't the same level of like hardship and responsibility that falls upon Mm -hmm. everybody in the household um it's just it's yeah so we've become further and further removed from that responsibility and i think in that process we've deemed you know children to be um less and less capable and then people live down to their expectations sometimes, That's right? That's true. So right, and if and this yeah. goes into some of the psychological effects that lead to depression and anxiety, which is where I'd like to maybe tease if we're going to talk about this again next week. But uh, you know, it's especially observable, at least for me and young men. It's an alarming percentage of young men between the ages of twenty and thirty that still live with their parents, and. One, I think multi-generational dwelling is incredible, and I think that we lack that culture. I think it would do wonders in our country if if there was more multi-generational dwelling, but I have a feeling that that stat isn't young men that are contributing to the family. 
Yeah. They're not working a full-time engineering job and helping take care of the house and the right. grandparents. It's more like a freeloading thing. And I, why? I, I don't know if there's an answer for this, but like this, the data doesn't lie about that. Well, there's a part of our culture too, I think, where we've encouraged, and, and I don't mean to imply, I don't want to slip into binary thinking. I don't mean to imply that this is an entirely bad thing. I think there's value and merit in it. I think it can be taken too far. But I think there's a part of our culture where we've reinforced this idea of, of, of like living life to fulfill whatever your personal dream is. And mm -hmm. that is the purpose of your life is to figure out what is that incredible, special, unique thing that you want to do and you do that at all costs. And I know personally lots of people who are like, well, I don't know what I want to do yet. So I'm not going to do anything until I figure out what I want to do. I shouldn't say no lots. There's people I've known in my life mm -hmm. who have pursued that path. Um, and I think our culture reinforces that as maybe like a wise choice. And I think it's more dominant in our past culture and certainly in other cultures in the world today where you just do whatever you have to do to survive. And maybe you find your, your, your passion along the way, or maybe you work your ass off to get to a point where you can live your passion. But I think we have so much wealth and comfort in our country today that Lots of people have the luxury of of not working and sacrificing before they get to the point where they're living their passion. You know, I think that's a part of it. I don't think that's the whole picture, but I think right. there is well, that's some another... part of our culture that reinforces that. And it's not always healthy. Yeah. And again, I don't know where this came from, but that's another huge stat. Like some crazy percentage of people expect the standard of living their parents have now and that's like college age kids they expect oh to have it immediately a standard of living equivalent to what their parents are living now in their life well we also that's an uh, that's another thing if culturally where we and social media reinforces this where yeah people expect to have a affluent lifestyle and there's lots of people, obviously, if you look at the percentage of household debt in this country, it's astronomical. People live beyond their means mm -hmm. so that they can have the lifestyle that they want now, right? That instant gratific gratification. Um, yeah. But they haven't done you know, the hard work and the sacrifice yeah. to get to a point where you can comfortably, realistically live right. that way. Which, again, um, is probably where I come back to like, that's where the internet is training us to like be constantly comparing yeah. to the top performers. You know, yeah. like I think of who oh, have you guys seen the movie, the revenant, the one that Leo DiCaprio yes. finally yeah. won a freaking Oscar for. Um, I think of the, the wisdom in that when he is having like flashback moments of his wife and through the vision or whatever, the the line is something like in the middle of a storm don't look to the top of the forest to feel safe because all the trees are, are going to do they're going to be swaying pitching every which way branches are coming loose leaves are falling instead look at the trunk because if you look at the trunk of the tree in the middle of the storm like 
you perceive no movement. But the higher you go, you see all the turbulence, right? And like, I think the internet teaches us to look at the tops of the trees in the worst of times. I like that metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, and which is mm-hmm. honestly like why I love, I love the pro- the project of podcasting with people like you two is because like taking podcasting to normal people and not just like making another, it's like the audio version of cable TV, right? With some of the ways that some companies are trying to make podcasts and sell ads for them and all that. But when it's Mm -hmm. normal ass people like us having a conversation, I think, man, it's, it so sounds like I'm just like America needs to get like, look to the roots, like look to the, the everyday citizen, you know, not even America, just like society in general is like, I just believe if we take the time, like in my show, no normal people to really get to know just people you meet at a coffee shop. Like that's how Tim and I, Tim legacy and I are great friends now is because I ran into him at a coffee shop and just on a whim invited him to be on K and P. And now we work together and we play D and D once a week. And I see him five out of seven days a week. And like (laughs) just looking to the people in our vicinity instead of looking at the, you know, the influencers that have 1.3 million Instagram follows, you know, those are the tops of the trees, the bottom of the tree where we should be looking in the storm to have a sense of like stability are the, are our actual communities of normal people living lives like ours. Right. Yeah. Get, be grounded in your own yeah, community. Yeah, and even even yeah. like I always think of in terms of anti-fragility, I always think of the way that uh, engineers learned to build skyscrapers by like modeling after trees. Like skyscrapers are designed to sway quite a bit in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's even perceivable toward the top floors. And those people know, like, the building is actually doing what it's supposed to do and sway in the wind. Because it, if it was so... That's a weird feeling when yeah. you're yeah, in a right? tall building and yeah. it moves like but that. But if it was yeah. rigid, yeah. it snaps, right? right. It becomes it brittle. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, like, that's so anti-fragility we... in my mind, is, like, swaying right. with it, but also, like, the roots are so dug deep. You know, like, the most dangerous hurricane for a tree to weather is its first one. Right, and then it becomes anti-fragile because it's strengthened by. Yeah, its and by the next time the next hurricane right, is there, storm. it has at exactly. least another ring on its trunk. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I think this conversation tonight has just kind of laid a groundwork for next week's conversation. Because I actually want to talk more about what it is to be anti-fragile, mm-hmm. and I would like to have a really, con- I would love to have a incredibly constructive conversation about how we can implement that in our day-to-day conversations because just as as a little side note here or final final thought um as i've been thinking about this and reading and learning um i've seen some pretty interesting commentary on attributes that are generally tried to well attributes or ways of thinking that are through therapy generally uh addressed uh as far as depression and anxiety are concerned 
called cognitive distortions, which is like a way that people think that can lead to depression and anxiety, which is pretty much the number one mental health issue, right, today. But there's a push, mostly through education and whatnot, to embody that kind of thinking in how you perceive the world. And some of the cognitive distortions that psychiatrists are trying to weed out of patients that are seeking help are things like catastrophize or minimalize. Thinking like that, like, oh, it's the end of the world, everything's the worst, right? Jumping to conclusions. Is Jump this, to conclusions. Yeah. The all or nothing thinking. Mind reading. Projecting what you think someone else is thinking. Mm. Emotional reasoning. Assuming that your emotions necessarily reflect reality. I feel like this, therefore that's true. Mm-hmm. Disqualifying anything that's positive. Predicting the future, fortune telling. Overgeneralization. Labeling. Personalization and should statements are the top 12 red flags for cognitive distortion, which again is a sign of anxiety and depression, or at least things that you shouldn't be projecting, right? So they're working on removing that kind of thinking from people. Whereas when I read that list, I was like, oh, I feel like there's a lot of young people that that's how they perceive the world, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Or how they perceive other people. So imagine you're having a conversation with someone and you're labeling them as something or you're projecting something onto them that's going to seriously hinder your ability to have a conversation with them. And I mean, if that's how you're thinking, maybe that's maybe that's a cause. Maybe that's why people are anxious and depressed and you know, you've got this this worldview, your your whole frame of reference is from this very unhealthy position. So I would love to next week to maybe start really thinking about this and maybe let's address it and try to offer some solutions. Again, I think I mentioned this last week. Like a lot of these things I think are the default. Like it's easy to fall into these as a default. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah. Cheers to that, friends. Happy birthday, Torna. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. I love y'all. Love you too. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on the Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dixie Lee. 
The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire Sonder in yours. No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast and in Montana. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.